0: Just ask, Lord, for a spirit of wisdom, spirit of revelation, Lord, that you would help us to to see the things your your prophets have foretold, and Lord, that we would that we would have understanding and that we would have application from these things, Lord, and that that your spirit would just bless this time. And so, Lord, uh, uh, speak to us. We pray, In Jesus' name, Amen. Right on. So, yeah, we're gonna wrap up here. We're gonna go whip through these. Last three chapters of Zechariah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of material here, but as we saw last week, the last six chapters make up uh, two, two oracles. Um, and so last week we looked at Zechariah 9, 10, and 11, the first oracle, this first prophecy. Oracle just means a prophecy. And um, we wrapped up. Last week, with Zechariah telling us about the worthless shepherd, the Antichrist, and uh, and the result that would be for the people of Israel at his, as his coming. And so, as we as we're moving through this sec- section of this little prophetic book, this is one of the highest concentrations. And we talked about this last week of messianic promises within the Scriptures in, in Zechariah nine through through fourteen. And so the second oracle, the second prophecy takes us to the end times here. Zechariah is going to describe um, what happens during that time. The Gentile nations attacking Israel. He's going to talk about the Jews experiencing severe trials. And and when Jesus returns in great power and glory and is coming to deliver his people and to establish his promised kingdom. And so this Pretty amazing stuff in here. It has to do with future events as we read it this morning. It's Bible prophecy. And as we talked about last week, it's it's really interesting in Zechariah because in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, it's like yeah, between verse 9 and verse 10, it's like Zechariah skips over the entire age in which you and I are living. He doesn't talk about the church, he focuses right on Israel. And, uh, and so as we read this this morning, the church is not in view. This, this has to do with Israel. Uh, when the nations and, and the atmosphere, what, well, what, what is the atmosphere of the nations and the atmosphere of the world at the time of Christ's second coming? And so, um, you know, as we talk about the second coming and as we go through this this morning, recognizing that the church isn't present, we have to kind of separate in our minds always the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church we believe those are two different things and so the church is not in view it's been raptured it's been caught up to meet the Lord in the air and now this is what's happening just prior to the second coming of Jesus and so let's check it out Zechariah chapter 12 my Bible titles It, the Lord will give salvation and it says this the oracle so here it is the second oracle the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. I like that verse right off the hop, you know. For a preacher, that's a really easy three-point sermon. Did you see it in there? He stretched out the heavens. Boy, last night, Lisa and I, uh, we were going to bed, and we got up to check something, and I said, man, let's go out on the deck. We went out on the deck and just sat out there, looked at the stars. It was gorgeous. And, uh, you know, the Lord, it says here, I'm the one who stretched. This is the Lord speaking, who stretched out the heavens. And if we look above us, man, we see the heavens that the Lord of hosts created. Zechariah says this, thus says the Lord who founded the earth. We, We look beneath us and we see the earth the Lord founded. And he also says this, thus says the Lord of hosts, who formed the spirit of a man. He stretched out the heavens. He founded the earth. And he formed the spirit of a man. We, we look up. We look down. But here too is we, we need to, to look within and find the spirit that he formed. And so Zechariah goes on. Verse 2. Behold I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah and on that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. And so the prophet just begins to tell us about Jerusalem. The problem that Jerusalem will be considered to be for the nations of the earth. And on a certain level, we, we see the early parts of that in, in, in the news and in politics and in the world today. That's happening already. People are confounded about Jerusalem. What are we going to do with the problem of Jerusalem and everything that's going on there in Israel? And, it, and it's, it's just going to increase. And so the prophet tells us that it'll, it'll be like anyone who touches Jerusalem. It'll just be this thing that causes men to stagger, that will hurt the nations. And, and, and those who come to destroy Jerusalem will themselves be destroyed. And Jerusalem is just going to continue to be this city that perplexes the nations, that, that the world is confounded by. And they're going to wonder what to do with the problem of Jerusalem. And the prophet tells us, eventually, all the nations of the world are going to gather against this city. It's interesting in verse 4, it starts with these, just these three words. On that day. I think in these chapters, it's about 18 times that the prophet is going to say, on that day. He's not speaking about a, a literal 24-hour day, but a period of, of time as we read this. So, verse 4. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse and the peoples with blindness. And so as the, the armies of the world gather, the Lord said he's gonna, there's going to be a spirit of confusion upon them. There's going to be panic and madness and blindness but the Lord is going to keep open the eyes of Judah they're going to have his help in the midst of all that's going on it goes on in verse 5 then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts their God and so in the in the midst of all of What's going on? In the midst of the armies gathering, the siege preparing on Jerusalem, when all seems to be coming to an end, the the clans, the peoples of Judah, the people of Israel will take notice of something. They're going to notice the confidence of the people in Jerusalem, the inhabitants of that city. They'll say, look at the people of Jerusalem. Even though they're being encircled, they have a confidence. They have a hope. They're finding strength in, in, the, in uh, their hope in the Lord. And you know, as I read that, I just can't, I can't help but think of believers of Jesus who are going through incredibly hard things, you know? Think of the Simpson family. You know, there's sickness, there's disease, but in the midst of it all, there's hope in the Lord. And the reality is this is, it's just like in this picture, Judah was watching Jerusalem and we don't know who's watching us. We don't know who's looking on. We don't know who's watching and go look at that sickness and disease and yet these people have hope. They have trust in something. And their lives, our lives can be observed and our hope in the Lord can be observed and in the midst of what's going on here, the Lord says this through the prophet, that Judah will see Jerusalem's hope and they'll take hold of the same hope. Here's the promise that that even the outlying regions of Judah are going to recognize Jerusalem has a hope and we're going to take hold of that same hope in the Lord. And so verse 6, On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, Like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples. While Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first. That the glory of the house of David. And the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. And so the prophet just says in that time. The first victories will go to the outlying areas. The first victories will go to the clans of Judah and those outlying regions, and the Lord will communicate to them, you are just as valuable as the city of Jerusalem. You're just as valuable. Verse 8, check it out. Again, on that day. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And so just this great picture that the Lord says that he will protect them so that the feeblest person is like David. And we were joking with the kids this morning about day. Wasn't that great? I got corrected this morning. That was good. Corrected by a little guy. You forgot Samson. Uh, but here he says, you know, the feeblest will be like David. David we know this, a mighty warrior who trusted in the Lord. He killed the lion and the bear. He took on Goliath. And he faced uh, the, the armies that came against Israel, their enemies. And everywhere he turned, the scripture says that the Lord gave David victory. And so the promise is, is that in this day, God will make the most feeblest people like, like David. It says the house of David will be like like God. like the angel of the Lord. I mean, how many times in the scripture do we read about the angel of the Lord going before the armies of Israel and striking down their enemies? And then verse 9, it says, And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem and so just straight up the Lord just lays out how how things are going to go down through the prophet Zechariah and then we read in verse 10 and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that they will look on me on him whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and will weep bitterly over him as one weeps for the firstborn. And so incredible here Zechariah just begins to prophesy and to tell about how the people of Israel are going to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. In in that time in the in the face of great victory from the Lord against the nations who've gathered against them to destroy to destroy them, God is going to pour out upon his people, the people of Israel, a spirit of grace, it says. A spirit of pleas for mercy. And that they'll recognize that Jesus whom they pierced was the Messiah who they've been looking for all along. And I, I just it just makes me think of this fact that it's like you can't ever see Jesus for who he is unless it's by the grace of God. You know, if you th- think to yourself, I don't know who Jesus is. i I don't know who he is. I don't know if he is who he claimed to be. Look, I would say, do this, ask the Lord for grace. Say, God, I'm asking you for mercy. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, reveal him to me, show him to me. It says they'll look on him who is pierced, that soldier's spear that went into the side of Jesus. And naturally, when they recognize that Jesus is who he claimed to be, they will begin to weep. And Zechariah tells us what the mourning will look like amongst the people of Israel as they recognize Jesus as the Christ. Verse 11 On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself. And their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. He just begins to describe this incredible mourning that's going to come upon the people. The house of David, the kings. You know, the house of Nathan, the prophets. The house of Levi, the priest. The, so you, you get the kings and the prophets and the priests and the Shemites and the men and the women and the children and the families. Every part of society is, be, is gonna just go into this deep mourning when by the grace of, and mercy of God, Israel comes to recognize that Jesus is, is truly the prophet, the Christ. And Zechariah says this. He says that the, the morning will be as great as the morning that was for Hadad-Rahman in the plain of Megiddo. What's he talking about? That's, what, what, what are you talking about, Zechariah? Well, this is a reference to 2 Kings 23. And it's a reference to the story of King Josiah, the king of Judah. You know Josiah and his story. Josiah was one of the most beloved kings in the history of God's people. He had reigned about 100 years, maybe 150 years before the time of Zechariah. uh, Before the Israelites were taken into exile in Babylon. And Josiah was one of the kings who was a a boy king, a child king. He began to reign at the age of 8 years old. And some of the kings prior to him, in particular his father and his grandfather, uh, served idols, they worshipped them, led the people astray. But Josiah had a different heart in him. He had a heart to serve the Lord. And when Josiah was in his early 20s, he, he directed the priest to begin to restore the temple worship, to repair the house of God. He oversaw all of that and it's during his life that that famous account happens where the, where the scroll of the Lord is found and the priest says we, we found this scroll in the temple and they bring it to King Josiah and it's read to him and when he heard the word of God read and the law of God it just blew his mind and he gathered all the people of the kingdom and he had the book of the law read to all the people by the priests and they began to lead a spiritual reform and as a nation began to come in line with God's word. All led by King Josiah. And Josiah turned the nation from idolatry to the Lord and it centered around the teaching of the word of God and making the word of God accessible to the people. And the result was this, is that Israel had had like revival under his leadership and the result was uh, they celebrated the Passover for the first time in a long time. And the Bible actually tells us in, in 2 Kings there that under Josiah's leadership that there had never been a Passover celebrated like the one he led in all the times of all the kings. The Bible says this, you have to go back to the time of judges to experience a Passover like Josiah led. I mean like literally... Uh, you have to go back to the generation that experienced the reality of the Passover in Egypt to know what Josiah led the people through. And so Josiah was, was beloved. He was a darling you know, boy king of the people. And the tragedy of his life was this. Egypt and Assyria were going to battle. The Lord actually spoke to Necho, the king of Egypt, to go and to fight the Assyrians. And so, for Egypt to fight Assyria, where have they got to go through? The land of Israel. That's that land bridge. And so, as Egypt was traveling through, uh, Josiah went to, out to meet Necho in the valley of Megiddo. That's where Armageddon's going to happen. And Necho basically said to him, look man, get out of my way. I'm not here to pick a battle with you. God has called me to go and fight the Assyrians. And so I'm just traveling through, man. I got some business to take care of on the other end here. That's what God's called me to. But Josiah didn't listen to him. And he lined up against him. And the reality was is that God truly had called Egypt to to go and fight Assyria. And so Josiah stood in opposition to Necho who was God's instrument to deal with another nation. And he was struck down. Struck down in battle. And his death was unnecessary. His death was premature. He was a man taken in his prime. He was the treasured king of his people. He had led them back to the Lord. And so when he died, the, the mourning as a nation, Jude, when Judah mourned for him, I mean really their mourning was unprecedented in their history. Unprecedented in the history of the Jewish kings. More than David or Solomon than anyone. You know, as I was thinking about this, I I, I remember, you know, in 2000, our family had a tragedy. Lisa's oldest brother lost his 19 year old daughter in an accident with a drunk driver, took her life. Happened in Abbotsford and and in many ways, you know, her life was just starting. I mean, she's 19 years old. And for us as a family, we were like processing it. We're, you know, it's like senseless. It's pointless. It's like someone taken from our family's life and in, in in their prime. And, uh, you know, we mourned. We still mourn. And uh, I, w- I was thinking about this, you know, just as, as preparing this week and, uh, you know, a couple years back we had, we had like just a family dinner and it happened to be on Jackie's birthday. And so, you know, they always default to me. I'm the pastor. So they always want me to pray at the family meals. And so I just prayed, you know, and just we spent some time thanking the Lord for Jackie and for the 19 years that we had and what she meant to us. And um, bless the meal said amen, and it was like painful, you know? My brother-in-law had to just, he had to leave the house. He had to just leave for a while and go collect himself. And, and you mourn because it's like, this is not necessary. This was like premature. God where's your hand in all this. And that's what it was like when Josiah died. Just like that for, the, for an entire nation. And what the prophet is telling us is that's what it's gonna be like when they recognize what they did to Jesus and they see him as the Messiah, the one whom they pierced. The mourning will be so deep, Zechariah says, it'll be like the loss of a firstborn. You're a parent, you just imagine for a moment, maybe that's happened to you, to lose your firstborn. The grieving and the mourning and they'll recognize this, that They'll recognize we had a hand in this. We had a hand in what happened to Jesus. And I, and I just think they'll, they'll, they'll play thousands of years of history over in their heads and in their hearts. And they'll say, man, if only, if only, you know, things could have been so different. But Zechariah tells us what happens next. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Wow, that is hope in the midst of mourning right there. The Lord says, yeah, they're gonna mourn, but I'm gonna open for them a fountain. A fountain. You know, I read that, I think, man, that's the same fountain that you and I rely on, a fountain that started at the point of a spear with a savior hung on a tree. Blood and water flowed. The hymn writer, William Coper, wrote about that fountain in the 1700s. He was inspired by this verse, Zechariah 13, 1. And he wrote that hymn that you probably know, there's a fountain filled with blood. Remember that old one? There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And the Lord says that's what's going to happen for this nation as they mourn the fountain of blood is going to be poured out upon them. And they will be cleansed from their sin." Just like you and I have been cleansed from their sin. Our sin. Then he goes on verse 2. And on that day declares the Lord of hosts. I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. So that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets. And the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies his father and mother who bore him will say. You shall not live. For you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. And he will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive. But he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil for a man sold me in my youth. So Zechariah prophesies prophesies this. That not only will the hearts of the people be cleansed of sin, but the fountain of Jesus' blood will actually cleanse the land itself. That idols will be driven out, that false prophets will be driven out, that the the, the land and the people will be cleansed of, of deceit and defiling in the names of idols and false gods. And the idols and the false prophets, you know, you think about those, those are two issues that have plagued Israel throughout all of their history. Idols and false prophets. They'll be removed. The Lord says, The spirit of uncleanness will be removed that caused people to turn away from me. And the false prophets will will do this to protect themselves. They'll go so far as to begin to lie. They'll say, I'm not a a prophet. I'm a farmer. I was a slave. You know, I was sold in my youth. And and they'll lie. Look at verse 6. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. So the false prophets, when they're asked about the wounds that are on their body, they'll say, I received these from my friends. They were, dis- what's he talking about here? Remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal? When Elijah's mocking them and they're calling on Baal and they're trying to get Baal to respond. You remember what they did? What did they do? Cut themselves. Wounded themselves. Poured out their blood to begin to get Baal to respond to them. And so this is like a reference to, to, to that practice. They've afflicted on themselves in the worship of their false God. Wounds and the shedding of blood. And so they'll lie. They'll say these wounds that we have were inflicted upon us by my friends. My friends did it to me. You know I was out of line. I was I needed to be disciplined, and so I I got a beating. They'll they'll lie, but now you know in your mind, contrast to, to the good shepherd Jesus, the true shepherd. What are these wounds on your back? The wounds I shed, the blood I shed for my people. You know, in fact, it says, or on your chest. The footnote in your Bible says, what are these wounds on your back? What are these wounds on your chest? I hate that scene in The Passion of Christ. You know when Jesus is being flogged and they're whipping him? They're whipping him, flogging him. And the soldier looks over to his commander and says, shall we go on? And the commander just gives this single. Turn him over. Give it to him on the other side. He's wounded not just on his back, but on his chest as well. In fact, the Hebrew language, the original language actually expresses the idea here that he was scourged, that this person is scourged on their back and chest, but also that they have pierced hands. That's what the Hebrew language suggests. The shepherd struck. Verse 7, it says this Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now if you have a pen, this is a verse that is worth underlining in your Bible. I want to read it to you again. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hands against the little ones. JB Phillips, he's one of my favorite Bible commentators. I read them most weeks as I'm doing weeks as I'm, I'm studying for Sundays and stuff like that. And he said this. He said that this verse is so clear and so definite and pointing to the deity of Jesus that if it was the only verse in the entire Bible that spoke of the deity of Jesus, it would be sufficient to prove his deity. It's an incredible verse. I read, I read other versions as I was just checking this out. Notice this in this, the second line of that verse. Against the man who stands next to me, says the Lord of hosts. The man who stands next to me. Right there, you have the picture of the God-man. The God-man. The, NKJ, uh, the New, King, New King James Version says this. Against the man who is my companion. The NASB says, against the man who is my associate. The New Living Translation says, against the man who is my partner. And here we read, against the man who stands next to me. This is Jehovah speaking about the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus. And so right in this verse, we see the mystery of the God-man. What does he say? He's a man and he stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. And the picture is this the Lord says, Take the sword and strike him. Strike that shepherd. The first time that we see the picture of the sword in the scriptures, where? Can you think about where it is? It's early in our Bibles. Genesis chapter 3. The first time a sword is mentioned in the scripture. And we know what the sword is there is that it was, it was used by the Lord to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden and access to the Tree of Life. When Adam sinned, when Adam and Eve participated in their rebellion against the Lord and they were banished from the Garden of Eden, when the Lord cut off for them access to the Tree of Life and they lost eternal life, Adam who was created for eternity became A mortal creature. We're born in that nature as a result of sin. We're we're mortal unless the Lord gives us eternal life. And Adam who was created, well I guess to, to guard the access so that Adam couldn't go back to that tree of life, the Genesis chapter 3 tells us that the Lord put a cherubim, an angel at the entrance to the garden, and there was a sword. The the scripture says a flaming sword, a flashing sword that moved and it protected from all directions so that no one could have access to the tree of life. And Jesus, who became sin for us, though he was in very nature God, though he was God's companion, his partner, his associate, though he was God standing next to the Father... The Lord took that sword and he used it on his own son. The very sword that guarded man from access to eternal life was turned and used against the good shepherd, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Strike the shepherd, the prophet says, and the sheep will be scattered. It's amazing, just this amazing verse here. And we know that the gospel writers take this, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and they apply it to the disciples who scattered from Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane, who who fled, left him alone. And so, just what an awesome verse. eh? It's it's amazing. The God-man. Verse 8. In the whole land, declares the Lord, Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. So the prophet goes on and begins to speak about just this time of the great tribulation, the time that we call the time of Jacob's trouble. It would be unprecedented in the history of the Jewish people, satanically inspired before the second coming of Jesus. And we see the same pattern in the history of Israel. Israel the history of the Jewish people, that when God is about to move in their midst, Satan has tried preemptive attacks against the Jewish people to hurt God and to hurt his people. The first one I always think of is Moses, right? When the people were living in, in slavery in the, in the land of Egypt and God was blessing them in the midst of slavery and they're growing and they're multiplying And Pharaoh was satanically inspired to enact a a genocide on Jewish males. And God preserved one boy hidden in a basket floating on the Nile River. And the Lord raised up that young man and he became the redeemer of his people. And he led them out of slavery. Or Herod, you know, satanically inspired at the time of Christ's birth. And he ordered the killing. Of the children under the age of two. Because he feared that a king had been born. That would usurp his throne. Or of course there's the holocaust right. It was a satanically inspired preemptive attack. On God. And on his plan. For the Jewish people. Because the Lord was leading them back to the promised land. It was evil. And And God. Turned Satan's plan on its head and now we look 60, 60 years later and Israel's one of the most powerful nations in the world. I think they have the second strongest economy in the world. It's like 7 or 8 million people in 60 years and they have the second strongest economy in the world. One of the most powerful armies in the world. Nothing for God to do that. He's at work in the midst of this. And so prior to the second coming, we read this. Zechariah tells us, Satan is going to repeat this same pattern. And it's going to be the Antichrist who leads this whole thing. And two-thirds of the people are going to be cut off and perish. And one-third will be left alive. And in spite of Satan's plan, one-third who are left will be left alive. And, and it's going to be a terrible time for the Jewish people, but the Lord is going to be at work in their midst. And what will happen is this is that they will begin to call on the name of the Lord. And he tells us about this. Look at verse nine. And I will put this one-third, the one-third that survives, into the fire. And refine them as one refines silver. And test them as gold is tested. And look. They will call upon my name. And I will answer them. And I will say. They are my people. And they will say. The Lord is my God. Wow. You know what? When we call upon the Lord. He answers. You know when you're being refined by life. Like silver, and you're feeling like you're in the fire, I tell you, call on the name of the Lord. God, I need you in the midst of this. Call on him. And he answers. And at this time that Zechariah speaks of when the people of Israel call upon the Lord, he will answer. And this last chapter of Zechariah, chapter 14, tells us about the Lord's answer. Let's check it out. Verse 1. Behold, a day is coming. For the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on the day of battle." And so what's going to happen? The nations are going to converge on Jerusalem. There's going to be series of of wars. It's going to, the Bible tells us where it's all going to culminate in the valley of Megiddo where Josiah died. Armageddon will happen. And as the nations converge and are seeking to annihilate Israel, the Lord will physically return and he will fight for Israel. Look at verse 4. On that day. His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Wow, what a picture. That's incredible. Mount of Olives is the place where Jesus ascended from into heaven. The disciples just looked up and the angels said, what are you looking for? As you've seen him depart, he's going to come right back to this spot. Zechariah tells us the same thing. His feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives and when it happens, it's going to be cataclysmic in this world. His feet will touch the Mount of Olives and that mountain is going to split uh, in two. It's going to move to the north and to the south. It's going to form this valley in the middle. And it's interesting that years ago, the Sheraton Hotel Corporation made plans to build on the Mount of Olives. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. It's a true story. They went and they did an environmental impact study on the Mount of Olives, and it showed that the Mount of Olives has a major fault line riding right through the center of it. And so the Sheraton Hotel Corporation, they totally ditched their plans to build their hotel on the Mount of Olives. It's amazing you know the 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 geologists discovered what the scripture had proclaimed for 2500 years just need jesus feet to touch down there it goes look at verse 5 and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to ezel and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of uzziah king of judah then the lord my god will come and all his holy ones with him. That's you and me. All his holy ones with him. And when the mountain splits, it'll actually provide this way of escape for the people of Jerusalem that are under this attack. And it might seem, you know, hard to believe. Really? The mountain's going to split this whole deal? Well, you believe the story of the Red Sea, don't you? God parted the waters once, didn't he? He parted the waters for his people to escape. Could he not part a mountain for his people to escape? This time it won't be the sea. It'll be a mountain. On that day, verse 6, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but evening time, and there shall be light. It's kind of weird this week. Did you get out and see the eclipse? Oh, it's weird, eh? Uh, Eli was heading over to Keats camp. He's at Keats camp this week. So it was 1030. We had to be down at the marina with him and launch him off, which was right at the middle of the eclipse. And I walk, we walked from our house and it was just like, the shadows were bizarre. I don't know if you noticed that, but we noticed like all the shadows of the tree, everything was weird. It was like kind of dusky and, or the light was just, I don't know, being filtered out obviously. And it, it was just weird. But this is a, it's a day when the Lord comes back. It's going to be unique, Zechariah says. It's not going to be anything like what happens on this day when Jesus comes home comes back to earth with us. Verse 8 it says this, on that day living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. So when Jesus comes back the land in a sense is, it's going to be, well not in a sense, it's going to be healed. The land is going to be healed. The Dead Sea is going to teem with life. It's interesting. The city of Jerusalem is kind of a, a unique city in this sense that it's built in the mountains. There's no body of water. There's no lake. There's no river. There's, you go there. It's like fascinating because you're like, how can all these people live here? And there's no body of water. I mean, look at Vancouver, built on the sea. You know, you look at it. Look at any major city. They're built on rivers or, you know. Bodies of water, but there's no water there. But the, this tells us it's going to change in that day. Water is going to flow from this mountain, and the river is going to go in two directions to the west to the Mediterranean Sea, and to the east to the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea is an interesting body of water. It's dead because the water only flows into it from the Jordan River, it's the lowest point on earth below sea level, I can't remember what it is, 2,700 feet or something below sea level. There's no outflow in the Dead Sea. So the water just comes in millions of gallons every day into this big sea, but it never flows out. And so the salt and elements just collect in this sea and the water evaporates and it's just this concentration of salt and nothing can live in it. Nothing. But, but here on that day when Jesus comes again and this river begins to flow, that river is going to flow down into the Dead Sea and this sea is just going to, the water level is going to rise and it's going to begin to have outflow and fish are going to be in that. Ezekiel prophesied this that at En An- An- on the shores of the Dead Sea fishermen will gather and they will, they will fish and it will live. You know, the Dead Sea is interesting because why why is it dead? Because it has no outflow. It has inflow but it has no outflow. You know, same true for you and me. We'll be like the Dead Sea if all we ever have is inflow from the Lord and there's never an outflow. Our lives need an outflow. There needs to be an expression of what God is pouring in and it needs to flow out of our lives. And you know what? When, When there's an inflow and an outflow, Life happens in this body. Life happens. You know, just don't let your life be the Dead Sea. Where's the outflow? And so there's these incredible geographic changes. Jerusalem itself will will be a different city. You know, uh, we read here, we're going to read here that it's going to raise up, that there's going to be plains around it. But one of the things we see is that everywhere the river flows, everywhere this river flows, there's life and there's healing. And that's the way it is with the Spirit of God. When he is flowing and there's inflow and there's outflow, he brings healing. Look at verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day the Lord will be one and his name one. Verse 10. The whole land, there it is, shall be turned into a plain from Gibeah to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site, from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hanels to the king's winepress. And so when Jesus comes back, take notice of this. What, what's happening when Jesus comes back? Hearts change, geography changes, land changes, topography changes. The land around Jerusalem will become this, it'll be lowered into a plain and, and Jerusalem itself will rise up. Verse 11, and it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. W- what's one of the changes when Jesus shows up? One of the changes is that there'll be a, there'll be a, a switch in the political atmosphere. There'll be a change in the security of Jerusalem. Boy, you look around this world and the political atmosphere, the security of Jerusalem, always an issue. When Jesus comes, that's all going to change. No more politics. Woo! When Jesus comes, right? No more security issues. When he comes back, danger is removed for the people of God. Verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. That's, that's what's going to happen to those enemies when Jesus shows up. I, I don't know what that, I mean, you know, people always call it sounds like nuclear, it sounds like the effects of radiation. Who, who knows? All I know is it's the result of Jesus showing up. Verse 13. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of the other. And so, just amongst the armies that have come against Jerusalem, there will be great panic. We see that elsewhere in Scripture where the enemies of Israel, they just, the Lord, brings a panic amongst them, and they turn on one another. Verse 14, even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this, sorry, and a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. You remember when the Israelites, when the last plague, the Passover, happened? And they're heading out. They're leaving and the Egyptians just started taking, the Bible tells us they began to just take their gold and their silver and they just gave it to them. Said, please leave. Get out of here. They gave them all their treasures. So that's going to repeat itself. This plague that's unleashed on every living thing and, and God's people will reap the benefits of that. Verse 16 then everyone who survives of the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And so the nations who survive, the Gentiles who survive, will go to Jerusalem to worship. And, and, and there will be a, t- a time of worship. There will be worship. There will be times of celebration because, man, they've, they've, they've come through. They They survived. They survived what had gone on in, in, in the nations and through the time of the great tribulation. And it says in verse seventeen, and if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of Hosts, there will be no rain on him, on them. So listen to that. When the, when those who, who don't have time to worship, experience drought, they're going to have a shortage of rainfall. You know, the same is true for you and me. You think about it. People are the same. People who do not make time to worship experience dryness right here in their walk with Jesus. Dryness in their soul, dryness in their relationship with Jesus, drought in the soul. Worship's important. Times of worship in your personal life, corporately to worship the Lord, it it brings life. It's like rain falling on your heart. Verse 18, we'll wrap up pretty quick here. And if the family of Egypt does not go up to present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain and there shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of, Booth, Feast of Booths. So Egypt, you know, if they decide not to worship, they might, not make, they might make it without rain. I mean, it's a fertile land. They got the Nile River and all that stuff. But the Lord gives another warning, just specific to Egypt. He says, you'll have plagues. You get the picture here, right? Oh no, we've been through this before. We don't want plagues, so we're gonna make sure we come to Jerusalem to worship and not have the return of those plagues like in the Exodus account. Verse 19, this shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses holy to the Lord. And on the pots in the house of the Lord, sorry, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as bulls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts so that all whose sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the, of the sacrifice and sac- sorry, And take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. What's he telling us? He's telling us this, that on the day when Jesus comes back, when Jesus comes back to rule and reign, there will be no separation of holy and unholy. There'll be no separation of secular and spiritual. or There'll be no separation of common things and holy things. There will be wholeness. There will be unity. Even common things like bells on horses will be inscribed holy to the Lord. I mean, it makes sense if some of the instruments of the temple are considered holy to the Lord, but he's saying even the most common things in life will be called holy to the, to the Lord. I mean, what a day it's going to be when Jesus comes back. It's incredible, right? You read this, this is amazing. And you know, as I think about this end, how he talks about just the common things will be holy, you know, for the believer, for the Christian, for followers of Jesus in our day and age, you know, New Testament followers of Jesus. We have the same version of what Zechariah is saying here. It's in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. And Paul says this. He says this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Paul says for the Christian, for the person who follows Jesus, there is no common and holy. There is no secular and sacred in the Christian life because everything comes from God and everything should be used for the glory of God. That's the attitude that we're to take as as believers. And so, you know, as I as I think about this text, and you know, it's a lot of prophecy, I get that. And we're covering it like fast, moving fast. Then I think about just, just some some application. Some things we can take away from it. What is this? You know, you look around this world and you see. You need to look at the news and look at the politics, the geopolitical situation in this world through the lens of scripture. It's one of the things followers of Jesus do. You know, I've heard it said, Bible in one hand, newspaper in the other hand. (laughs) We look at the world and we can see all the things that are going on and here's the thing. We have the end of the story. We have the end of the story. Oh, you know, my dad sent me this thing right now. Just about some of the changes that are happening in the school system effective this year, some of the cultural engineering, that's social engineering, that's happening. Just the the sexual confusion that's just being brought upon our culture, the gender stuff, that all this, all these things go. Ah, God, what are we doing? We have the end of the story. We have the end of the story. And so we need to be people who, who hold the Bible in one hand and the, and the newspaper with the other and know that we can walk for the Lord in the midst of this generation. You know, I have to think, man, the Lord could have placed me and you in any generation in the history of the world. He placed us here to live for him now. And there is no separation for us as followers of Jesus between the sacred and the secular, between the common and the holy whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You know, I think about this text. I think, wow, the Lord says here that when, when His people call upon Him, He pours out a spirit of grace and mercy. Look, you got stuff going on in your life. <laughs> Some of these things maybe I just mentioned. You call upon the Lord. You call upon the Lord. That is the pattern of Scripture. And He does this grace and mercy upon our lives. He answers. Leave you with one last one. It's important. We don't want our lives to be the Dead Sea, do we? When there's dryness of soul, when there is dryness of soul in your life, what's the answer? Worship, man. Outflow, outflow. When there is dryness of soul, bring the sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord and let him refresh you. What an amazing thing that as followers of Jesus, man, we got, the, we got the whole story here. Not the little parts, the little details, but we have the end of the story, the last chapter. We got to just skip ahead while everybody else is freaking out. We know how it ends and it's a great blessing for us. Let's pray this morning. Would you guys stand with me?